Thanks so much for the introduction, uh, for inviting me. Very pleased to be here. And um, I want to talk today about whether mobility has a future or is this the end of the road. Okay, so to begin with uh, three quotations to uh, try to contextualise some of the issues that I want to uh, discuss. First of all, to raise the significance of energy and the relationship of energy, and of course I'm particularly going to talk about transportation energy to social life and to social equality or inequality. Secondly, to this uh, quote from Zizek, which uh, I think is rather a brilliant uh, capturing and characterization of uh, the significance of uh, the environmental catastrophe that generated oil. And uh, oil is going to play a significant and uh, murky role in the uh, argument that I'm going to develop this afternoon. And then thirdly, to note the utter significance of the energy use that took place over the 20th century. And um, uh, the 20th century and the 21st century are rather broad categories into, into which I'm going to uh, orchestrate and organise some of my uh, argument. So, to begin, uh, lives in the rich north have been based upon increasing income, wealth, security, well-being, and especially movement. This was the modern dream, apparently set in stone, certainly since 1945. The 20th century, we might say, looked like it was here for good. Uh, especially as its only rival, uh, state socialism in Eastern Europe imploded around 1989. What uh, Joseph Stieglitz calls the roaring 1990s made it look like the rich North had literally struck gold. The 21st century then would appear to have been uh, business as usual, more of the same, as high-carbon systems would increasingly spread around the world, engulfing almost all countries and cultures. High-carbon, modern production and consumption seemed to have no borders and uh, few limits to growth. In that, of course, certain uh, certain central role is played by various forms of energy, and particularly uh, the significance of those energy resources which power tools, buildings, machines, and especially what I like to call mobile machines that order and reorder physical, social, and military worlds. The development of such machines, of course, as we well know, had set the modern world onto a striking new path of high-carbon systems. And this is not just a question of a different kind of economy, but also a different kind of society, and of societies, social life, socialities, coming to be organised around high-carbon patterns of life. Societies develop thus, as we might say, as high-carbon as high-carbon societies, as a consequence of the way in which those carbon-based machines made and reordered the world, beginning, I believe, beginning, I think, especially significantly around 1840, and uh, elsewhere I've made an argument about 1840 as when uh, the modern mobile world sort of starts. 
and as a consequence of that, uh, those developments, and especially from 1900 onwards, we've, uh, as McNeil says, deployed more energy since then than all of human history up to 1900. Now, in the development of, of this, these high-carbon production and consumption patterns and practices, oil plays a very special significance. In fact, we might say there is an oiling of the wheels of society. Uh, and or another way of putting it is rather than money making the world go round, it's oil that makes the world go round. Go round. Oil provides at least 95% of transportation energy. It is an element of at least 95% of manufactured goods, and some estimates say that it is central to 95% of all food production in the world. It produces, of course, as a side effect, about a quarter of all greenhouse gas emissions, and um, it is an energy resource that is uh, finite, and many commentators believe that it is about to start running out and there are no systematic alternatives. So what the 20th century was, was a century whose high carbon forms of production consumption, forms of economy and society, were based upon one extraordinary uh, resource, one exceptional resource, what some people call black gold. And this had the consequence of powering up 20th century societies in really stunningly novel ways. This was a high carbon pathway, obviously also involving coal and gas, but oil I think is particularly distinct. And this high carbon pathway moved onwards and upwards, developing and reinforcing Western modern societies, Western modernity. So you might actually think even that Western modernity, the whole idea of a modern, sophisticated, cosmopolitan uh, world, uh, beginning, in North, beginning in Western Europe and North America, it's not so much that that maybe was intrinsically superior to anything that happened in the rest of the world, but it was the contingent consequence of the discovery of oil in the 1850s in the United States, that then and, and as the discovery of techniques of refining this peculiar black substance into uh, motor fuel and into uh, the fuel to power aircraft. So maybe it wasn't the Enlightenment or Western science or liberalism that was the key to Western modernity, but oil or black gold. So as I say, the uh, discovery of uh, this oil in uh, the United States was a moment of great significance, I think. Um, and it then became, that oil then became utterly central to American economic, cultural and military power. And especially to the emergence of two systems, the car system and the aeromobile system, aeromobility. And they both originate from around 1900, loosely speaking. And, the, this cont and, and they both originated the... Uh, Although the early development of the car had been a European, West European phenomenon, 
the, the extensive development, of course, of mass production of petroleum-based cars was something perfected in the United States, in the famous uh, uh, Ford uh, manufacturing, the Fordist manufacturing system and so on. Uh, it's normally thought that uh, aircraft travel began with the Wright brothers in 1903. So around 1900, you had these two exceptional, extraordinary mobile machines beginning based on oil and come to take over the world and especially enable the United States to come to exert uh, globe, well, um, global dominance first uh, through various kinds of uh, uh, um, monopolization of uh, such uh, resources, uh, accounting for a third of global wealth, uh, around a quarter of energy consumption, producing a quarter of carbon emissions, although the U.S. population is about 5% of the world. Um, <clears throat> It's uh, said that every American has 150 energy slaves working 24 hours a day to support the scale of energy use. And this followed on some extraordinary rates of change of uh, energy production consumption. Uh, <coughs> this um, uh, rate of increase was exceptional with, uh, for example, the average household of 1970 commanding more energy than an 18th century small town. And uh, the, also it should be noted the way in which the U.S. drives about a third of the world's cars, slightly under now, and uh, has produced about a half of the world's transport-generated uh, carbon emissions. So this is an American hegemonic set of relations on a stunning scale, both economic, social, uh, cultural, uh, through images and so on, but also, of course, military as well. And you probably know the largest fleet owner in the world is the U.S. military. And in a way, this, this, this also generated the, an American dream, a dream of the good life. But, of course, it was a dream that was actually only possible through monopolizing the world's, or a good share of the world's resources, especially this energy resource of oil. Um, you, we might say, very loosely speaking, that American production and consumption got, got in there first, we might say. And uh, you probably know this calculation, that if an American lifestyle were to be enjoyed by all the world's population, it would take at least five planets to support that population. I also think this, um, this pattern of 20th century mobile living created a mirage of unlimited growth and of no barriers or limits. A vision of the future, uh, though unsustainable into the medium term, since it had been based upon cheap, available and plentiful energy all of which are hugely problematic. Uh, sometimes people talk about this as the, the, the century of easy oil, as opposed to the new century, which is the century of tough oil. Um, 
But this pattern of um, exceptional increase, uh, for example, the use of electric energy increased 80-fold in the U.S. between 1912 and 1970. But what this did was to generate a high-energy regime which touched every aspect of, of daily life. It promised a future of miracle of miracle fabrics, inexpensive food, large suburban houses, faster travel, cheaper fuels, climate control and limitless growth. And as David Nye goes on to say, even the music of the emerging counterculture in the 1960s was plugged in. So this 20th century carbon dependence also stemmed <coughs> from a set of power relations. It wasn't sort of simply an economic process uh, and I think uh, there's another parallel story that I'm not going to touch on very much this afternoon, which is the story of what I like now to call <coughs> the carbon military industrial complex. That, uh, <coughs> according to a former uh, um, oil executive Jeremy Leggett, is the world's single most important interest and has many effects on world politics and on the uh, denial of uh, climate change and various other consequences. So that's a sort of a kind of by way of background and on contextualising of the the role of oil and U.S. oil. Let me now try to slightly contextualizes a bit more by developing some slightly more theoretical points about mobility in all of this. So what I like, like to say is that there's a, there's a sort of accumulation of movement, which is somehow analogous to the accumulation of capital. The repetitive movement or circulation made possible by diverse interdependent systems of movement. And in all of that, I think it's the interdependence or clustering of systems which is particularly significant and um, in uh, the uh, 20, 1920s and 30s in particular these uh, systems came to uh, be unleashed in, in the United States as I've been briefly alluding to <clears throat> uh, partly of uh, systems of electric power and national grids the spreading of the steel and petroleum car, and it's very important to note how that was not inevitable. It didn't have to be a petroleum-based vehicle, and there were rival systems for the development of what we now call cars uh, in the uh, late 19th century, steam cars, and indeed battery-driven cars. Even Ford had a battery-driven car being developed in the early part of the, uh, 19th, uh, the 20th century. Um, but a fateful development in this uh, story is the development of suburbs, of suburban housing, distant from places of work, which have to be commuted to by car or bus, and then were filled by household consumption goods powered by electricity. There was the emergence of various other electric-based uh, technologies to do with uh, communications. And then, especially important, I think, and under-recognised, is the proliferation of many sites of leisure and pleasure. 
of shopping, uh, eating, uh, parks, sports stadia, theme parks, most of which came to necessitate very, very significant amounts of travel from home and neighbourhood, initially uh, by car, and then, of course, in the, uh, the last few decades, especially important to be travelled to by air. And that's, that's partly the sort of intersection of car and air systems that I think is particularly significant. Um, and then the, what's one might loosely call the American century, involved uh, this clustering, this development of this cluster of these uh, interdependent systems, which led to high, hyper-high carbon societies, which uh, had sort of were trialled, prototyped, developed in the interwar period and then spread around the world, obviously spread to Western Europe in uh, parts of the, the post-war period, and then spread uh, around the world. And when we talk of globalisation, I think we should think of the sort of the globalisation of this clustering of interdependent systems, which is particularly powerful and has sort of set society... <clears throat> after society on high carbon uh, pathway. Um, just to clarify the, the way in which uh, I treat uh, mobilities, uh, so I'm very interested in not so much merely physical transportation but the intersection of uh, the physical travel of people, the physical movement of objects, imaginative travel of images and ideas of uh, places especially, and of the, uh, the sort of imagining of other places, <clears throat> initially through uh, um, uh, written material, sketching, Photographs that date from uh, 1840 onwards, uh, and then obviously in the 20th century through uh, moving images. So the, we should never sort of separate the physical travel of people from the the movement of uh, images. Uh, there's various kinds of what I want to call virtual travel, and more more generally of communicative travel. Uh, again, a whole series of sort of objects and uh, uh, texts uh, kind of uh, and messages moving around connecting and reconnecting uh, people on the move uh, so but one of the things and, and, and sorry and let me turn to so a totally overwhelming PowerPoint is actually how one is not meant to do PowerPoints. <laughs> um, which, uh, what this does is to try to capture the multiple... This is just really treating uh, the forms of physical movement of people and to show the, the, the very diverse forms, or what one might loosely call social practices, 
in which travel is part of. So travel, travelling of people and also to some extent of images or of informational messages, communications, are part of these uh, dozen or so um, different um, sets of social practices. They, they each entail a kind of some sort of complex movement of humans, objects, technologies and scripts. And they range from uh, the, the travel of uh, asylum seekers, uh, the discovery travel of uh, students, medical travel, military, post-employment travel, uh, to right near the bottom, just uh, you know, tourism, uh, the visiting friends and relatives, uh, <coughs> and uh, work-related uh, travel. So one of the things that does, of course, is to problematise, if you wish to say people should travel less, it, which one might want to argue for very good environmental grounds, what this does is to complicate that because it, it shows the diverse systems of activity into which travel is embedded and the ways in which those have uh, spread around the world and which have made it thus very difficult to simply reverse. I'll come on to that a little bit in a due course. Uh, one of the things that thus, that also goes on to, to connect to is the ways in which a lot of travel is to do with networks. People are networked. There are various sorts of social networks. Even probably for some <clears throat> some some cases of asylum seeking, <clears throat> but certainly business and professional travel, the the, the practices of uh, young people travelling the world, doing their OE, their overseas experience, uh, and a lot of migration travel, uh, even tourism, but especially visiting friends and relatives, which is the fastest growing category of uh, leisure travel. Um, and, uh, of course, work-related travel. So in present in almost all of these practices are various sorts of networks, network relations, network relations that are often very far-flung, and that in order to keep that network going, often it, it is deemed to be necessary to travel, to physically, certainly to communicate, and sometimes to travel. So this sort of lies behind the central significance or this categorization of forms of uh, social practice lies behind uh, the significance of uh, physical travel. But... Um, <clears throat> and, and this thus has led to not so much the significance of travel per se, but to the growth of fast travel. And uh, so one of the things that I think we need to examine is the centrality of fast travel to many different uh, patterns, uh, social networked patterns, forms of social practice which are networked, which then entail the apparent ob obligation to travel fast in order to visit places in order and to visit people. 
Uh, and so I've listed a number of the main characteristics, many of which will be relatively uh, familiar to uh, many of you here. But um, one of which near the bottom is increased miles, both flown and travelled on the world's ships by uh, goods, by components and by foodstuffs. Hence the, what has become now a relatively familiar idea of food miles. But I think also analogous to that in the uh, penultimate bullet point is the significance of friendship miles, the miles that need to be travelled, often travelled by fast, in order to keep, or to make and to keep, uh, and to keep going, uh, friendship. Uh, Friendship often where the friends are scattered uh, across different uh, geographical borders in different countries, often in different continents. And so there's, we might describe friendship at a distance, the importance of friendship miles. And also, analogously, uh, uh, we might talk also about family miles, the miles that have to be travelled, often travelled fast, in order to be present at somebody's uh, you know, birthday, uh, somebody's uh, the Christmas event, the, the New Year event. Uh, and in so, a little bit of research we did, uh, we people's uh, interviews and reported, <coughs> reported on the utter significance of the utter sort of obligatory character of family and friendship miles. We have to be there. We could not possibly not be there. We would never hear the last of it if we were not there at so-and-so's birthday, Christmas, uh, Chinese New Year, or whatever it was. So family and friendship miles, as important, we, I would argue, as probably as food miles, and also as important as sort of the miles necessary to, to be part of a profession, such as to travel around the world giving uh, lectures on the uh, uh, does mobility have a future and and so on Um, okay so let me I'm going to have a slight diversion Uh, we're going to take a a slight detour to Dubai Um, in the last couple of decades one place has become particularly emblematic of uh, a new world order, uh, Dubai, which uh, started drilling for oil in 1966. But within a relatively few years, the oil began to run out. Its oil peaked. And instead, it developed a gigantic visitor real estate and consumption economy. And instead of being a major oil producer... Uh, Over 90% of Dubai's uh, revenue is now not oil-related. In fact, Dubai is the exact opposite. It is a vast consumer of oil. And this oil is used to build islands. Uh, You probably know the the Palm Island. Uh, There's also the the islands in the shape of the the world. to build uh, islands, uh, hotels, uh, the world's only seven-star hotel. Uh, It's just completed the world's uh, largest hotel with 5,600 bedrooms, I think. Um, It uh, provides um, a a spectacular range of uh, attractions, including this uh, ski resort, 
uh, where temperature, average temperatures are over 40 degrees centigrade. This is a place of astonishing energy excess, of hugely high temperatures, partly because of the unrelenting sun and the vast consumption of air, well, of air conditioners, often blowing full blast into the open air in order to make gardens cooler. And this indoor ski resort, uh, Dubai is the second. Uh, uh, is ranked second in the global league table of per capita carbon emissions, beaten only by Qatar, which is of course where the 2020, 2022 World Cup is due to be. The Dubai skyline. Uh, as in the top, uh, shows dozen, showed rather dozens of mega projects on the go, and uh, its uh, ambition had been to be number one in the world uh, as a kind of luxury consumer paradise, especially not just for Western visitors, which we might imagine, but actually for uh, Middle Eastern and uh, Asian visitors. And it sought to do this by striving for visual and environmental excess. And it created a whole <coughs> array of simulacra, uh, a Taj Mahal, pyramids, the hanging gardens of Babylon, a snow mountain, simulacra more perfect than the original. That, uh, that part, this pattern was interestingly only made possible by uh, very large numbers of migrant contract labourers travelling from Pakistan and India and then bound to a single employer and uh, often uh, where the, their passports are removed from them on entry. Its uh, na official national holiday is the celebrated shopping festival, a month-long extravaganza. Um, so this is a fascinating uh, place, a place where the global flows, we might say, of capital, people, culture, information, land intersect. And, you know, we, we can in a kind of way laugh at Dubai, but I think Dubai is a much more significant place because it provides, partly provides a sort of model of development. It, it is exemplar, which, has, which is being copied or has been copied uh, around the world. Places which presuppose huge numbers of consuming visitors roaming the world and consuming places made for them and increasingly made for their excessive and playful consumption. And I think that's actually a part of a much more general shift in the reorganising of, um, of place. Places are less something people belong to and move through, and more something experienced as visitor, to experience as visitor, to consume, to to be, to spectate, to pass through, to consume, to tick off. And, uh, of course, such places are thus a set of abstract characteristics as indexed in various guides and less sites that are necessarily slowly moved uh, within. This is what I, I like to describe as a kind of touring world, a world in which places uh, come and go. <clears throat> Some places speed up, others slow down or die. And people become, through guides, and especially web guides, uh, TripAdvisor and other uh, websites and so on, uh, places become uh, indexed 
consumed, they come and go. People are connoisseurs of places uh, which, of course, come and go and then, uh, especially significant, uh, need to be themed and re-themed and re-re-themed. So there's quite a lot in, in what I'm trying to say here which kind of connects us to place and to the reimagining of uh, place. <clears throat> but some of this is very problematic. And uh, I think one of the most interesting commentators on a, a lot of this is uh, Mike Davis, the urban American urbanist, uh, who argues uh, places like uh, Dubai have the effect that these dream worlds inflame desires for consumption, exclusion, security, and uh, sort of architectural uh, distinctiveness. And also, we might add to this, uh, for high-carbon lives in which places are experienced at a distance. So that's by way of sort of that's that's one set of uh, analyses, and uh, many of you will know, I guess, that uh, Dubai is not now the success story that it uh, once was. And many people argue that Dubai has kind of gone into reverse. And I then want to ask a question as to whether Dubai holds is a sort of metaphor uh, for mobile lives. It was the kind of extreme excess in which both, both in a way, both the, cons- both the consumers, the visitors, the high-paying cons- visitors, but also the workers were all visitors, uh, temporarily, the, temporarily there. It was a place of, of temporary movement. Um, and it has uh, gone into reverse its, uh, in ver- for various ways, which I'll come back to. So I want to ask whether the 21st century... Uh, maybe a different century from the 20th century and one of the reasons why it may be a very different century apart from what uh, many of you here are probably well familiar with that is the significance of uh, changing climates and the the context of changing climates for uh, economic, social, political, uh, environmental uh, forms of regulation and governments is whether oil is going to play a different role in the 21st century. Obviously, oil and its widespread use generates huge uh, greenhouse gas emissions and hence uh, much contributes to climate change. Two American writers, for example, uh, De Kiko and Fung, say that America's cars are one of the largest, world's largest sources of global warming pollution. That's one obvious point. Second, the supply of oil is finite, and many argue that we have reached or are about to reach a peak in uh, oil supply. Third, for machine-based movement, and especially for cars and planes, there is as yet there is as yet no alternative to oil, no systematic plan B, no systemic plan B. Uh, that uh, replaces the oil and its provision and the way it provides almost all of transportation energy. And new systems take quite a time to emerge. 
I, I wrote this book called After the Car, where I talked about uh, the possibility of a post-car system emerging, but it's quite clear that new systems take, at the minimum, decades to come into being. In the, I think, very interesting book, newish book by Brian Arthur called The Nature of Technology, he argues that uh, it always takes three to four decades for a new system to come into being and to sort of become widely accepted. And so if it is the case that systems take three or four decades to occur and to become globally significant, which is the only issue, the only question that's really of interest here, is whether there may well be not enough time before very different economic, social and political consequences would unfold if no post-oil cluster of systems uh, is emergent. So let me just say the peak about peak oil. The peak oil hypothesis is the claim, very obvious claim, that extracting oil reserves has a beginning, a middle and an end. At some point it reaches a maximum output with the peak occurring when approximately half the potential oil has been extracted. After this peak, oil obviously becomes more difficult and more expensive to extract as each oil field passes the midpoint of its uh, life. Uh, this uh, bell-shaped curve, or Hubert's curve, uh, as often known, uh, is uh, relatively uh, well-known, well-established. It doesn't mean that oil stops, but the supply of oil drops and prices rise. And sometimes prices rise very dramatically in the form of spikes. And also the energy costs of extracting oil from that particular field can often rise uh, dramatically so that you can almost expend as much energy getting the oil out as you do in uh, the oil that you get out. This is called the energy return on energy investment. Some argue that global peak oil occurred as early as the 1990s. Others estimate that it peaked uh, a, a few years back. More optimistic predictions suggest peak oil will happen around 2020 or so, uh, which is the, now the official estimate of the International Energy Agency. One of the utterly significant uh, aspects of all of this is the way in which uh, discoveries of oil have historically varied. The really huge oil fields uh, were discovered over half a century ago, the peak of oil discovery being in the mid-1960s, which is really a long time ago now. And there have been really no vast discoveries of oil since the, since the 1970s. And uh, in the North, you know, the North Sea oil, for example, was absolutely classic, fits this uh, pattern. Um, it is thought that about three to four barrels of oil are now consumed for each new one that is discovered. And some people predict that that figure will go up to one to ten uh, within a decade. And the United States, of course, plays is very significant here. The peaking of oil in the US, which is, of course, where the global addiction to oil began, as, we've, uh, as I've elaborated, occurred in 1970. And the US imports at least 60% of its supply now, and this will rise to at least 75% uh, 
in a couple of decades. So whatever the exact date, and it's, I think, completely pointless question is to say when exactly it happens of this peaking, over the long term, oil will be increasingly expensive, and especially there will almost certainly be very frequent shortages because of the fall in its availability per person. And, of course, what is another very significant fact here is that in order to keep the sort of the, the 20th century mobile world continuing and kind of continuing upwards, there would have had to have been huge increases in uh, the supply of oil. Some people think that um, <coughs> the, the amount of oil would have had to uh, have doubled by 2050 in order to keep the sort of the growth of uh, global automobility and global aeromobility and food <coughs> production and so on continuing as it spread throughout much of the world and as that world became uh, larger in population with another two plus billion people uh, by 2050 and as that world became more uh, urban and urban populations use oil at a much greater rate than do rural populations so it's thought that probably the amount of oil should be at least twice what it is now and it absolutely will not be uh, as far as one can tell and um, uh, the number of commentators on this one uh, commentator says industrial civilization, this sort of mobile world was based on the consumption of energy resources particularly limited in scale and especially on one energy resource I think it's the peculiar dependence the 20th century became so dependent on one resource a very, very clever and cute resource, uh, flexible, could be used for a multitude of different purposes, although that's kind of now the problem, because it's used in so many different contexts. And so what's the petroleum interval, as some describe it in human history, could turn out to be a brief period in human history, a, a century or so of easy oil. And so energy may be increasingly expensive. There may be frequent shortages, especially with the world's population soaring and especially with its urbanisation. Um, this uh, captures some of the, uh, the points that I've uh, been made. Um, uh, this uh, writer, Strahan, who writes often in the, uh, the Guardian on oil, is quite interesting commentator, the imminent extinction of petroleum man and woman, you might say. And um, uh, an assessment by a very uh, significant uh, body, the US National Intelligence Council, uh, Council. an energy transition is inevitable. There's an inevitable development to some other, but this happens very infrequently. So shifting, so there's kind of one implication of this, is that shifting to a kind of post-oil energy future is of utter difficulty. It is really, really difficult and happens very, very infrequently. Um, <clears throat> So one implication thus is that uh, there is very 
great difficulty in future. Currently, there are something like 85 million barrels of oil used a day. It is thought that the oil demand within a decade or so will have increased to 125, and it is thought now that that is almost impossible to deliver. So that, in effect, this is a very kind of interesting commodity. So there's rising demand. There will almost certainly be very rapidly rising prices, and indeed there have been very rapidly rising prices, but that it will not be possible to source, probably, uh, this increased demand, and thus prices will rise even further. Um, And... um, There are, as you probably know, lots of difficulties in calculating how many reserves there are in the world of oil, as indeed of other things. Uh, And uh, it looks like most governments, governments are the major owners now of oil, uh, especially Saudi Arabia most stunningly, uh, but also private corporations such as Shell are notoriously Uh, inaccurate in uh, summarising the scale of oil reserves and um, in uh, 204 uh, Shell for example was found out to have overestimated its reserves by 24% a fairly significant uh, uh, amount I've also said that in the the background of all of this is rising demand uh, for oil from Uh, so-called developing countries Uh, from 1999 to 2004 just a five-year period China's oil imports doubled and uh, the International Monetary Fund estimates the number of cars in China if things continue as they have been growing the number of cars in China will increase from 21 million in 2005 which is a relatively modest number, to 573 million in 2050. Uh, the current number of cars in, in the world is something like 650 million. Uh, and uh, China and India uh, are currently experiencing, as you will probably well know, uh, astronomic uh, growth in cars and also in trucks as well. <clears throat> So there is thus very strong evidence, not only for a kind of technical peaking of oil, a kind of uh, a political peaking because of the increased difficulties of accessing the oil that's around, and thirdly, a very substantial decline in the per capita availability of oil to, uh, to the, the population. It is said that maintaining current production levels would require a new Saudi Arabia coming on stream every three years. And that, I think, gets some sense of the scale which would have to be met by new discoveries because, of course, old fields run out, become more difficult, become more expensive, and so on. I won't go through some of the problems of uh, getting uh, oil from the Gulf of Mexico following uh, BP's uh, Deepwater Horizon rig explosion or the issues of uh, Alberta uh, uh, oil, tar, tar sands oil and shale oil and so on. Um, <clears throat> 
one of the consequences also of all of this is oil becomes short uh, in supply and once something's become short in supply uh, it becomes a matter of financial speculation so it has become one of the uh, kind of key commodities which is increasingly securitized uh, turned into derivatives and uh, traded on financial markets and uh, there's a recent uh, report by uh, Lloyd's of Lloyd's of London that says that that uh, financial speculation turning oil into uh, financial products and uh, repackaging in various sorts of uh, uh, products then sold on has substantially destabilized supply and price and reduces uh, worldwide energy security. There are also many implications and connections between uh, oil insecurity and uh, uh, foreign policy, uh, especially, of course, in the United States and the development of uh, oil wars. <clears throat> also, it's often said that the more a country becomes dependent upon oil, uh, the more unstable it is, unless you're Norway, that is. <laughs> kind of the exception that proves the rules. Okay, let me just um, somewhat bring this to a conclusion. You might say, well, all of this is all very well. I was going to say all very interesting, but you might not say that. All very well. But um, is it having any effect so far? Isn't this all very much sort of futurology, speculation, uh, and so on? But I want to conclude by suggesting uh, that it's already had significant effects. Uh, I've actually told briefly the story of Dubai, but uh, uh, I think the, the, the increased insecurity of oil supplies and significant increases in the price of oil between 1990s and mid-2000s has already had major economic and social consequences. <clears throat> Central to the sort of neoliberalisation has been the speculative intertwining of property and finance. This involves, as many know, uh, new forms of indebtedness directed to new kinds of property purchaser, the parceling up of those debts into new financial packages, and then the selling on of those derivatives, creating a financially complex uh, house of cards as many analysts of the financial crisis of 2008 have described and books by, quite interesting books by, say, George Soros as an insider, for example. From the 1980s onwards, many new American suburbs were built, and they were built often very distant from city centres. And, of course, most American suburbs are not connected by mass transit to city centres anyway. These suburbs depended upon car travel, and hence they depended upon cheap oil for the work, leisure and social life of the residents of these new suburbs. And, to be fair, there was cheap oil during most of this period. Uh, during the uh, 1990s, the roaring 1990s, as Stieglitz put it, uh, oil became, uh, the price of gasoline, for example, petrol in the US actually declined in real terms, which is an interesting point that you have to kind of take note of. Cheap oil there was for that uh, period, 
and that partly fueled the speculative building of these huge uh, number of American suburbs, which were then, of course, sold to people with subprime employment uh, histories, the so-called subprime mortgages, which became so problematic subsequently. But beginning uh, around 2004 5 and probably significantly enhanced by Hurricane Katrina and the collapse of a lot of refining capacity in the Gulf, in and around the Gulf of Mexico, there were sudden and dramatic uh, shortages of oil and a dramatically increasing price. So while um, gasoline prices in the US had remained around an index of around 100 or so during the 1990s. By uh, 2007, it was reached 302, i.e. in US terms, it increased threefold, which for the US is a huge increase, and 405 by 2008. So there had been a really uh, three- to four-fold increase. Low oil prices had actually increased about 15-fold in that period. Oil prices increased, but gasoline prices increased three to four times. So this was a huge problem. And this suburban housing, as we know, had been mainly sold to people with subprime employment credit and housing histories involving new kinds of financial innovation, especially uh, uh, initiated uh, by J.P. Morgan. Uh, according to uh, Gillian Tett's uh, brilliant book on that. So though the subprime housing is known to be causal within the set of events that triggered the great financial crash of 2007-2008, actually what has not been realised is how the subprime and suburban tracks were driven to the brink, as one commentator puts it, by oil dependence and by oil price spikes in that period in the mid-2000s. This, for me, is a kind of extreme event, what some people call a black swan, um, <clears throat> which uh, sort of came from nowhere, but which rocked this unstable US housing finance system, which had been based upon unstable indebtedness and upon cheap, plentiful oil. And when those two things kind of kind of clashed against each other so uh, this put pay to suburbanite this pattern of suburbanized growth based on cheap oil based on uh, housing going to people with very poor employment and uh, credit uh, histories the subprime and uh, at the same time this oil price spike uh, 207 to 809 also has, has apparently put pay to the Dubai model of development since, as one commentator put it, it grew too high, too fast, the party's over for Dubai. Um, <clears throat> so it's also striking that this house price, the reductions in far-flung suburbs were most marked where there were no alternatives to the car, and hence the greatest dependence upon the price and availability of uh, petrol. And what that has done is to produce some interesting reductions in uh, mileage. Uh, yeah, okay, I'm going to stop in one minute. So this is one indicator, there are various other indicators. 
So it seems to conclude that there is not enough energy in the right places, available at the right times, delivered through effective systems so as to continue worldwide systems of global production and consumption. And uh, there may then turn out to be a kind of movement down, and that may be reflected in a series of other uh, indicators, or is is already being shown. So what that may suggest is that not only is there a moment of peak oil, and indeed also there's interesting analyses of peak gas, but also of uh, peak water, and perhaps a more generalised peaking um, at in the global north of oil, gas, water, food, and so on. And so we might be uh, living at a moment of turning, a tiny kind of tipping point or a turning point. And perhaps actually uh, we have we've never had it so good. And we won't have it as good again. Okay. Thanks. <laughs>